Disruptors, a podcast that teaches you the four chords you need to build any website. I'm your host, Glenn Fleischman. Jonathan Colton has called into existence a world in which a bearded Brooklynite Yale-graduated programmer singing songs on nerdy topics he records in a home studio posted to the internet can quit his job, build an army of fans, give his music partly away, attract 600 people to a themed cruise, become a regular on public radio, and have his work ripped off by a major network television show. Jonathan's voice, compositions, and performance are top-notch, and I count myself among his fans, but what made him sui generis in 2005 and among a still-growing category in 2013 is that he's achieved all this through direct interaction with those who love his music. He's not signed to a record label, which means he doesn't have to deal with the bizarre accounting in that industry that leaves top-selling musicians somehow never seeing a profit on their albums. And as proof of how busy he is, his website talks about a bright potential future for himself that he's actually long achieved. Welcome to the podcast, Jonathan. Thank you very much for having me. Well, I hate to tweak you about your website. I think you're actually a little busy because I go there and I'm like, wait a minute, this hasn't been updated in a long time. He must actually be doing things. Yeah, I, you know, my website looked, uh, I sort of designed it in 1983 style back in 2005. <laughs> and now it, now it looks even, even more out of date. It's, uh, it's true. There's so many, there's so many parts of that website that I need to fix, but you know, it's it's on my long list of many things to do, and I just haven't gotten to it yet. This is that, you know, you're doing it yourself thing, is that you have created your own career, you've created your own relationship, and that means by necessity you're managing your own stuff, and the website's part of that. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, it's also, it's funny, the, the, the website... Uh, feels less important now than it did a few years ago, just in terms of the whole big picture of how I communicate with everybody. Oh, that's funny, right? Because you're, I mean, you're active on Twitter. I know not so much, again, the busy thing, not so much lately, but you're, you're a regular Twitter user. You talk to folks on Twitter all the time. Yeah, well, you know, it's I, the blog used to be the only way that I could communicate with fans, uh, but now there are so many other ways uh, that uh, it doesn't... I think it's a general thing that has happened. Blogging used to be very important, and uh, it's sort of changed in in that way. I think people, you know, once you're on Twitter and you say a couple of things, it doesn't feel as necessary to write a really long post about what you think. Yeah, that's right. And eventually we'll just be posting single letters someplace. We'll just, uh, A, five, nine. You know, I think um, one of the things that's interesting about your career is that, you know, you started as a, working as a programmer when you switched your careers and became a musician. And you've gone through this whole, all the different revolutions that have happened in the the aughties and the, the teens here, where 2005 is when you went full time with your music. But we've gone through all that. There was blogging before that. There was, uh, you know, MySpace. There were ways to post music. Music, there's all that, and then we've gone through each revolution and change until you know now blogs aren't that useful, website isn't that useful. What's it been like to go through that revolution as you've tried to build a career? Well, it's you know it sort of makes you feel old. If you work in technology for long enough, <laughs> you will you will feel very old and outdated because you it's impossible to keep up. Uh, and yeah, when I started, there were there were so few platforms that you could you could do these sorts of things on, and and now there are it's a you know as you know it's just it's just exploded. Uh, the ecosystem has just gone crazy, and uh, it's it's hard to know what all the options are, uh, let alone knowing that you're doing the right thing all the well, time. When you started, there was you know Facebook was still a private thing at Harvard. Twitter didn't exist. iTunes, I think it was very difficult as an independent musician to get music. On iTunes, it was all DRM protected, and there weren't that many other music forums in 2005. I mean, there were other people selling, but they were all pretty minor compared to 
iTunes and Kickstarter and Indiegogo and the rest of it didn't exist at all. It feels you were you started in a vast wasteland of the open internet. Yeah, I I mean the podcasting started in 2004. By the time I started it was, you know, there were maybe 10 podcasters. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you know, and just basic things like being able to sell an MP3. I mean, that was a really real challenge. You had to you had to know how to write uh, write code to do that. Yeah, I've talked to a lot of folks who, when they started somewhere around 10 years or thereabouts ago, and most of them have or had some programming experience just enough to either get a website up that could do something or figure out a PayPal link or, you know, integrate one little component so that there was a way to start the money flowing because that was the key thing that let them then transition to doing it full time was some little revenue stream that was that needed JavaScript or Perl or PHP on the back end. Was that true? You had to build your own website to make this all happen. Yeah, I, you know, I had uh, before I started doing the music full time. I had already uh, set up a blog on on uh, WordPress, and then f- that was sort of my base of operations from there. And and yeah, when I when I first started selling uh, MP3s, I didn't write the PayPal integration myself. I actually found a company that did some PayPal integration, but you know, it was still pretty complicated to set up the set up the links and and the shopping cart and all that. But yeah, it was very much a roll-your-own situation back in those days. And fortunately, I mean, I think a lot of this comes from when uh, broadband started to take off, too, is maybe a couple of years before you made the switch, you could see the writing on the wall, as a lot of people could, is that it would be possible for people to download these huge 20-megabyte files would suddenly be, you know... But I had this conversation with uh, Cartoon well, in last week's podcast. I talked to Zach Wienersmith of uh, Saturday Morning Breakfast Serial, and his career took off about 10 years ago, just when that hockey stick happened happen, the switch from dial-up to broadband, because even his graphics were too big for dial-up, the way he worked. And for music, it seems like 2005, that was the point where you could count on your core audience, the people who are just geeky enough, just interested enough, looking for new music. A huge percentage of them would have broadband at home by then. Yeah, and of course, not to overlook the, you know, the changing nature of basically consumer electronics, you know, the MP3 as a as a file format that you could listen to in the place that you already listened to music that was still a developing uh, world as well. So, you know, it, it wasn't as if everybody was comfortable buying MP3s because, you know, they could only listen to them on their computers. So they just didn't have the devices that could, you know, now now we can stream any format anywhere in the house if you have the right boxes. But then it was, you know, it was not a guarantee that any, any every, everybody uh, had that capability. It's so funny that this is eight years ago we're talking about it. I feel like... No, I know. Like, well, this is, that's what I mean. That's why it moves so fast and now I feel old. Oh. I'm talking about, I'm talking about a world before you could stream MP3s anywhere in the house, and that seems ridiculous. It, but you know? it is. I, my, uh, I've got two small children. They just bought the latest rendition of the Hex Bug, which you may be familiar with since you have small small children, child. Sure, yeah, yeah. So yeah. The, and I'm like, I'm like looking at this thing last night. I'm like, this is the most advanced piece of robotics. Like, if this, if someone had this in 1970, they would flip out because everything about this, even the plastic molding, was so far beyond the translucent plastic molding would have been so far beyond the technology. And I'm like, now it's like, oh, it's eight dollars on sale at Radio Shack. This thing that has more robotics in it than you know the space shuttle mission did when it launched or something. Yeah, exactly. In this in the seventies, the 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 uh, today's hex bug, you know, that could have stood in as the villain for a Buck Rogers episode. <laughs> was that complex? I told my son that yeah, if, when I was growing up, it would have required a house and a huge you know electrical feed to move such a device around. <laughs> right, it would have been the size of a car. Sorry, the new hex bug only car sized. <laughs> That's right. But, so you know, so your career starts back when I, all these different factors come into existence and. 
you know, it's obviously it's this huge, terrifying, <laughs> risky thing to do. I um, love reading about how you approached it, that you gave yourself this challenge. Can you tell me about the thing a week that you launched your sort of um, uh, quit my job and start this uh, career with? Yeah, well, you know, when when I left my day job, it wasn't um, I didn't have that much of a plan, or at least I didn't have all the steps figured out. I, I knew that I wanted to make money. I knew that I I wanted to, I, I wanted the end of the process to be that I was making money, and the beginning of the process to be that I was making mm. music. But I didn't know how to link those two things. Um, and you know, when when I first found myself at home with all this time and all this pressure to actually do something worthwhile and not just play Xbox all the time. It seemed really important to have a project and a deadline and to force myself uh, to pretend that it was my job. You know, essentially, well, okay, Hotshot, you want, you want to be a professional songwriter. Um, why don't you pretend that you're a professional songwriter and write songs on a regular basis? And the easiest way to do that, to create a situation where I could not possibly back down, seemed like this thing a week project where I announced on my blog with not very many readers that I would release a new song every Friday for as long as I could stand it and hopefully for a year. And once I had made that declaration, uh, the idea was that it, it would be it would feel easier to to push through and create something every week than it would feel to to fail to actually post something on the, on the Friday. Oh, that's great. You set yourself a, cha- a public challenge so that there was like, there were stakes. If you didn't do it, people were going to say, yo, Joe Co., what's going on here? You said you'd whatever. Yeah, I mean, even if nobody said anything, it's like, you know how lame that is. If, you, if, you've, ever found, if you've ever found somebody who's made a declaration about what they're going to do, and then a few weeks later they're like, yeah, I can't do it anymore. You're like, oh, yeah. boo, boo, you know. That's right, because <laughs> yeah, now you're the guy who did 52 songs in 52 weeks, not the guy who did 10 songs and gave up after 10 weeks. <laughs> right, exactly. It's good. But that, that gave you this huge source of material, right? So you had to put yourself through an intensive process. You're releasing the music, and at the end of it, I mean, I can't imagine what that year was like, but at the end of it, you're, you know, this is, whenever I've written a book, I'm so much happier when the book is over, of course, and I think, I don't even remember how I did that, because there's this pile of, pay, you know, virtual pages or real ones, like, there's a thousand page book, I had something to do with it, and my brain refuses to accept it. So you're at the end of this year, you know, and you've obviously, you know, you've worked your ass off for a year, you've got 52 songs, right? So then you've got material that you're, A, could tour with, and B, release as albums. That seemed like an incredible start. Yeah, and it's, it's a good point, it's the... <laughs> You know, by the end of that year, I had essentially a back catalog <laughs> before well, I had even had a this career. This is what happens. I think when you appeared on the scene, when I got when my attention was brought to you, like, hey, here's this guy. He does songs that are genuine about this area in which you work. Like, this is this is you, know, you can't fake you can't fake authenticity. You can try, but you know, it's clear that you were of the world of this kind of geek thing that I'm involved in, and you understood the internet, you understood all the workings. And I thought, where did this guy come from that he suddenly has like 50 songs? So you you. <laughs> felt inevitable because you'd come at it so fast. <laughs> right, exactly, yeah. But that's a great, and you released, did you end up releasing four, four albums from that over time? Yeah, so, you know, the it's funny, though, when I first started that project, I, I called it Thing a Week because I didn't feel confident enough to call it Song a Week. I wanted to leave, you know, I sort of thought, you know, I was thinking a lot about They Might Be Giants' dial of, dial yeah. of song, 
um, which uh, existed back before there was the internet, even where you could you could call this number and there was an answering machine at the it other was, end. And every it day, was busy sometimes. They would put a new call, piece of music you get a busy it. signal when you called it. Sometimes it was crazy. Yeah, I mean, it was just a phone hooked up to an, an answering machine with a cassette tape, you know. <laughs> um, and uh, and the thing about that was great about that was you never knew what you were going to get. And sometimes it was maybe a fully realized song, but most of the time it was a it was a verse or a, you know it was a really short snippet of something. Um, and if you called it enough, you would hear how they worked those components into into full-fledged songs, and they would appear on albums, and that was sort of exciting. And so I called a thing a week because I said, I thought, maybe I'll just do little snippets of things. But then, of course, you know, once I had released a couple of full songs that way, I didn't feel like I could back down. And yeah, the the by the end of the process, I had 52 songs of varying quality, <laughs> and uh, as part of the project and the kind of artistic statement I was making, I guess. I, I just decided to release them all in their original uh, form on four CDs. And now I think of it as less about those being albums and more about the whole thing being a big project and, and all of the songs just being the output of that mm. project. It's, well, it's a, it's a huge body of work. And, it's, you know, and I think out of that, there were, there were two that I think were breakouts, if I remember right. So it was Baby Got Back and Code Monkey both seemed to have the most, uh, the broadest resonance. Were those the two? Or are there others that people sort of latched onto and said, holy, you know, this is the one? At the time, those were the two biggest successes. I think that's true. I mean there there are other songs in that in that list that have come to have their own lives, but as far as things hitting quickly. Those were the two songs that were the, the biggest in that regard. Well, and I don't want to compare you directly to Sarah Silverman. In some, in some ways, I always think of her as, I mean, she's a great example of this kind of counterpoint. And uh, and without getting too pretentious, we both went to Yale at different times. <laughs> we don't get too pretentious about it. But there's this thing that goes back in, it's sort of like back to the avant-garde. You get Kurt Weil and Bertolt Brecht. And one of the things that they did, and why I loved their music, their collaboration so much, is this counterpoint, is you have this, you know, cheery ba 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 music, and they're talking about it guy who's a murderer and out killing people and prostitutes and so forth. And, you know, Sarah Silverman achieves that with, she has the sweetest face and the sweetest voice, and she can say the filthiest thing in the world. And I think for you, now you're wondering where this is going, I think for you, <laughs> there's this counterpoint that you've been able to build of, uh, you're you know, uh, very musically talented, you have a great voice, you do all this great instrumentation, and you can talk about ridiculous and silly things with a straight face. And the musicality makes people have to evaluate it in a different way. And I think like Baby Got Back, part of the reason that's that your rendition, I think, became popular is you were like both paying homage to and sort of pointing out the ridiculousness of the song in a sweet way at the same time by making the lushest, most folky, banjo-y version of it. It's this sweet, sweet Baby Got Back as opposed to a raunchy one, but they, they stand in contrast to each other. You have to be informed by Sir Mixlot's original version in order to appreciate yours. I, I don't... Yeah. Yeah. Do you even think about it that way, or is it? I mean, I don't mean. That's why I said I don't want to get too pretentious. But I think you're doing stuff that's in in that kind of counterpoint relationship. Oh, thank you. Yeah, no, that's you know, I, I would say it all comes down to for me, it's very important to take seriously what you are doing, the subject that you're you're writing about, and and that means even if you're writing about a say a mad scientist who is sad <laughs> uh, and kind of ridiculous and um, doesn't know what a what a schmo he is. You have to, uh, in order to make that work, you've got to you've got to take that character very seriously. You've got to really 
get behind him and know what he's thinking and feeling and and recognize that even though his ideas and feelings might look ridiculous to people on the outside, to him, they're not funny at all. Like, he doesn't think that song is funny. And because I think there's a, when you're doing music that is funny, it's very easy to dismiss funny music as being just, you know, sort of puffy and uh, a piece of candy that melts away. And But uh, it's important for me to put some weight behind it. And yeah, I think about I think about that stuff a lot. I mean, Baby Got Back for me is also kind of a comment on the uh, uh, historical tradition of white people stealing black culture mm-hmm. and doing it in a way that indicates they really haven't understood at all <laughs> the, the, the thing that they are stealing. And in a way, for me, the, the extra level to that song, uh, to my version of that song, is that the, the guy singing it is a fool you know mm-hmm. I, I i'm i'm the clown basically i don't think mix of i don't think of mix a lot being the clown in in that version i think of me being the clown if that makes sense no i think that's i think that's lovely and i think you're you're uh, eliminating the difference between say the dreaded novelty song and like and what i think both you and they might be giants and other musicians have done as well, which is, I think they might be giants. I mean, it's, I'm, it's funny. I have a question here that in my notes is, did dial a song inspire you? Well, we already addressed that. And uh, <laughs> yes, it did. And they might be giants when they came out. I think some people dismiss them as, as writing nonsense, but it's not nonsense. It's incredibly internally consistent storytelling that happens to not be in accord with our objective reality. I mean, it's like Lewis Carroll, you know, he didn't write nonsense. I mean, he did Right, you know, he wrote a kind of nonsense, but it's rigidly internally consistent, and that's the only reason it's funny. It's not just it's not just um, stuff being spewed out. Where novelty songs tend to be, I think there's a one trick pony in there. There's some kind of gimmick. Uh, it's kind of funny sounding and whatever. But what you guys are doing with they might be giants, and what you're doing is it's a richly layered thing. You're you're can interpret the song at many layers and enjoy the meaning of it from the surface down to deeper things. And as you listen to it, it rewards repeated listening as opposed to being a one trick thing that you're, you know, any weenie or what's it? It's a bitsy teeny weenie yellow polka dot bikini. Do you even want to hear that right. once? Probably not, but you know, I can listen to your version of baby got back and then switch and listen to mixes and go back and forth. And it's still an enjoyable thing on many repeated listenings. Yeah, and they were they were a huge influence on me for sure. And I, I I don't remember which song it was, but I remember when I was first getting into them, you know, after having listened a few times and initially being delighted by just how weird the music was and how weird the subject matter was, you know, the moments of insight where I would be listening to a song the seventh or eighth time and say, Oh, this is a really dark song. <laughs> you know, and I didn't notice that the first few times I listened to it, but now, and that's always a very exciting thing as a, as a, as a consumer of, of culture is when you, when there's a thing that you love and you've, you've um, enjoyed it enough times that you find, you suddenly discover a, a brand new room in the house that you've never been in before. It's a really thrilling thing. That's lovely. That's, that, I think there's, when you look at art, I, I just went to, um, I was really, I was in New York recently. I went to the, um, the Museum of Modern Art and they have this best uh, exhibit of uh, surrealism and Dadaism I've ever seen. It's just by, by far like over the top. I'm getting the catalog for it, which I never do. And one of the things about that art, you know, this art in 19, it's like the 1910, 1925 period they're covering. One of the thing about that is that at first it's a jumble of lines and it is nonsense. You look at it, it doesn't resolve. But every time you look at it, if you make the effort and you spend the time, 
it's not that it suddenly resolves into a picture of a horse, but more that you start to see the layers and layers of things they are putting in there. It's not splashes of paint. There's a force and intensity that is non-representational, and it comes out only when you put the time into it. And it's less accessible. Some of it's very funny. You know, like Duchamp stuff is funny, so it's easier to access. Some of it's totally impenetrable. But I think that's a thing with music as well as the difficult music. I is a big Laurie Anderson fan for years and years, too. Is she had that bit about difficult listening music, you know, put, put, uh, button your top button of your shirt and sit in a hardback chair. It's time for difficult listening music. And you couldn't just, you can't just listen casually to Laurie Anderson. Now, I can listen casually to you. They might be giants, but the more I listen, the more I, I get from it. And, you know, I think they went through a transition I, I love to talk about that you've done as well, is uh, that, you know, originally I think their first three, maybe four albums were considered like this sort of, not novelty songs, but songs that required an appreciative audience that would listen to it again and kind of get past, you know, enjoy the playfulness and then get into the deeper meaning. Your first songs were more of that akin, you know, they were, they were, um, stories in themselves, but things like, uh, Skull, is Skullcrusher Mountain? Am I getting the name of the right? Yeah, that's right. It's, yeah, which is, I think, I heard John Roderick perform that on a recent episode of NPR's Ask Me Another, in fact. <laughs> oh, that's right. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's great. You have people covering your, your songs. <laughs> uh, he said, just despite you, since you weren't there, he was going to cover it. And, um, and, and then Artificial Heart is a departure from that. The way they might be giants went into something that was, I think more narrative and less you had to work harder at the meaning and there was less I think that you would just say like oh this is a story about the mad scientist when you went into artificial heart did you worry about bringing your fans with you because it was I mean it, there is a consistency to it but it seems to me also a change uh, a lot of different kinds of changes in that album indeed yeah I, I think you know it, it took me it took me a long time to learn as a songwriter that um the in in some ways the less direct you are the better the song becomes but you know in in a <laughs> from a certain perspective anyway i i uh i think that the that is the one piece of advice i would give to any songwriters if you're writing a song and you feel like it's it seems kind of dumb or it it seems sort of obvious then you are probably explaining too mm. much and songs songs that are a bit of a mystery are I think much more interesting songs, and so yeah, you know I the I have the good fortune of having the the first uh, quarter of my my entire life's work never never appearing in public. Uh, you know I, I was a songwriter for many years <laughs> before I had any way of publishing them, and and so <laughs> so there are a lot of songs that I wrote that are too obvious and are kind of dumb, and no one will ever hear them. Um, <laughs> Uh, but yeah, I, I think certainly artificial heart. I made a uh, you know I wanted to I wanted to stretch a little bit as a songwriter, and that always feels important to me. And and uh, I felt like doing another song about a mad scientist or a sad monster uh, was too too easy and too obvious. And and uh, I wanted to write in a different way. And so yeah, I certainly experimented with less direct kinds of songwriting. And, uh, of course, you know, working with a band was very new and working in a studio and working with John Flansburg as the producer, all of that stuff was completely changed the way I worked. Uh, and it felt, it felt great to do because it was terrifying, <laughs> uh, and, and hard. Um, and I learned things and that is always when I am happiest is when I am learning things. And, uh, I, you know, I certainly did worry about, uh, bringing fans along on that journey. And I think that, some of them happily came along and and for some people that's the that's their favorite album of mine but i think it's not overall it is not it is not the album that i will be 
remembered for, if anybody remembers me, but it, it's not, um, uh, you know, it's definitely, I would say that album is not the place to start as a Jonathan Colton oh, fan. Oh, that's interesting. Well, right. And I think, well, if I look at your earlier songs, they uh, uh, quote the famous uh, Woody Allen line, right? It's, I like your early, funnier music better, right? Get, I'm sure <laughs> right. you're the... Um, but the but the earlier songs they're all self-contained stories, and it's not that there's um, I want to say like the novelty song is a gimmick, and you don't have a gimmick, but it's more like there's this single narrative that when I'm done with the song, I can probably explain to you what the narrative is. Like Code Monkey, it's a programmer, and he's got deep feelings, and you're expressing this in this you know sort of fun way, and it's a whole story about him, and I walk away with that story. Or even um, <laughs> you know Chiron Beta Prime or Skullcrusher Mountain. There's a, a snippet of a story you tell, and it's more. Expressive. Explicit. And when I get to Artificial Heart, the stories are more implicit. I know there's a story there, but I don't know all the pieces. I have to work harder to uncover if there's a narrative or if there's not and just appreciate it in its own merit. Like, I, you know, I particularly, I'm an old Suzanne Vega softie, so now I'm an arsonist. Sometimes I put that on loop and listen to it because it's such a sweet, I don't <laughs> know idea what it means. Like, and, that's, and I love listening to and trying to have my brain sorted out as I just listen to the sweet, the sweet vocals and her contrasting again. Uh, you get a great falsetto, by the way. That's a, oh, thank you. Yeah, so, but it's a neat thing where you've got you're matching yourself against several musicians on that song, on that um, album. But there's just um, I have to work harder to decide I don't need to know what you mean. <laughs> yeah, well, there are a few songs on that album that people people uh, are sort of desperate to know. Like, what, what's the what's the answer to the Who riddle? Is the arsonist. Um, yeah, wait, what is that? What or like today with your wife is another one where people say. People say, is that about somebody who died? Is that about somebody who's having an affair? What is that? You people know? don't like and ambiguity sometimes. That was, that's the thing with, you know, like with abstract art. It drove some people insane because it, you know, you want an answer. You know, that's the, the famous essay on kitsch, right? Is that kitsch is pre-digested. That's what a novelty song is kitsch because you don't need any interpretation to it. What it says is exactly what it means. And people get a little crazy sometimes if they don't have an answer to what a piece of art means. Exactly. And, and for me, you know, my, the fa my favorite song in all the world is a Leonard Cohen song called Famous Blue Raincoat, mm. um, which is a, it's the text of a letter that a character is writing to a, uh, a former friend, uh, and they've had a falling out, um, and he, he, he's sort of curses his name forever, but he clearly still loves mm. him, and there was some sort of love triangle, and you don't know exactly what the story was because you're just you're just hearing the text of this letter as it would be written by somebody you know from one person to another where both of those people already knew the story and didn't want to talk about the story and you know i, I occasionally i'll i'll remember that song and turn it over in my head and and try to figure out what the story was and i love i love that it's just the tiniest window uh, into these characters' lives, and you will never know the answer, and that you are not meant to. It's private. <laughs> <You know? laughs> the answer, what happened What happened to those people, it's not your business. I, and I just love that. Let's take a break to thank a sponsor. I've been designing websites since 1994. Yes, I'm that old. I had to hand-forge HTML and GIFs in Tim Berners-Lee's infernal web mills. If someone had shown me tools back then, like those that Squarespace offers today to build websites, drag and drop with no coding, I would first have asked to see their time travel license. But then I would have asked these visitors from the future if everyone in 2013 made it this easy to build websites. 
Well, they don't. Squarespace stands out in how easy they make it to build and host a website. For instance, you don't have to resize photos. You just drag them in and Squarespace does it for you. You don't have to worry about bandwidth usage. It's unlimited. And you can choose from templates and customize them to your heart's desire. You get a free domain name and you get 24 by 7 support too. So if you'd like to try out what the future feels like today... Go to squarespace.com slash new disruptors to start a free trial. No credit cards required. If you decide to purchase, click enter an offer code below the pricing at checkout and enter the offer code new disruptors three to get a 10% discount. That's squarespace.com slash new disruptors offer code new disruptors numeral three. Now back to the podcast. I think that uh, Elvis Costello, that's sort of his career, but also like Spike in particular, that album is full of songs that drive you crazy if you actually want to understand exactly what's happening in them. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, and, and it's a, in a way, it's a, um, you know, it's not the best way to write a hit song. But here's the thing, and this is the breakout for you too, I would say, if I may presume about your own career, is that uh, Elvis Costello, what was one of his most famous songs, is Veronica. And if you listen to the lyrics of Veronica, he's singing about, you know, ostensibly his grandmother who's lost her memory is in some institution, <laughs> if you listen yeah. to the lyrics. But it's this, ba, 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 ba. It's so peppy. And I think, you know, like Code Monkey as a breakout, or even your version of Baby Got Back, or some of the other songs that, that got airplay and got spread more widely beyond kind of um, a nerdy audience that initially discovered you because you were one of us is that that there's that cursory reading which you're like hey this is fun and ooh it's peppy and then each time you go down deeper and deeper you find how far into that you know ambiguity you can go yeah exactly and that uh, that for me is what it's about that's that's when I feel like I have when I feel the most as though I have succeeded in writing a song is when I, when I write a song like that. That's, that's the goal I'm always shooting for. Did you start uh, writing songs when you were tiny and this is like lifelong obsession? Uh, I, let's see, the first song I wrote uh, was in high school. I was maybe a freshman or sophomore in high school. Uh, although, you know, when I was a little kid, I think a lot of kids do this, you know, there were... <laughs> There were little snippets of, of music that I wrote and songs that sort of stuck it got stuck in my brain um, and that seemed to come from nowhere. And I see my kids doing that, too. And I think that's just a thing that kids do. But I didn't really write a song in earnest until I was in high school. And is guitar, is that the instrument you started with? Um, no, my first in, let's see, uh, you know, I, I took piano lessons as a, as a kid uh, and, you know, they didn't really stick. Um, cause piano lessons are hard mm-hmm. and kind of boring for a long time. Uh, and, uh, and I also in school band, I played the drums, the snare drum and I was in the marching band and, uh, we had a jazz band and I played drum kit in that jazz band. And, uh, so, and guitar, guitar sort of came later because again, it's, it's hard. It's hard for a kid to pick up the guitar and begin to make music that sounds pleasing. And it wasn't until, it became super important for me to have a portable girl impressing tool that I could bring to parties. And once, once I realized that nobody wanted to see me twirl drumsticks, and instead, if you sang uh, Fire and Rain on the guitar, you, you know, there was not a dry eye in the house. You had everybody's attention. 
that was a real motivator for me. It, that seems, and this seems to be the uh, the basis of being able to be a one man band, one man recording studio before Artificial Heart, where you had the expertise and access to all of these different instruments. So you could you know you could be that one man band in your studio and not necessarily have to rely on other people at that stage when you're starting out. Yeah, and I I, I know enough on I have enough skill on enough instruments that I can fake a lot of things pretty well. So yeah, that was definitely definitely very helpful that I had a drumming background as well as a guitar background and a little bit of piano. It's very very handy to be able to translate ideas into real stuff without without having to involve another person. Well, and I have to give you a little bit of a hard time since we are since we we're college classmates five years apart about um, the music scene at Yale as an undergraduate scene. There are a lot of interesting things people think of Yale as this you know it's liberal arts school and, and English and deconstructionism and all that. But the music scene at Yale was sort of crazy. And I've compared notes with people at other colleges and a lot of people you know whatever whether it was an Ivy or a state college or what have you. Uh, th- these other colleges often have uh, there's a lot of people playing bands and there's orchestras and so forth but we had so many singing groups and you were in two of the the better known I mean there were so many singing groups the joke used to be for many of them is that everyone in the audience is a member of some other singing group attending a concert right <laughs> because I, think that is, I think that is true because who else would go see acapella oh, I know purpose. but th- I mean what there's like Eight acapella groups, at, you know, but what a great! Oh, there were fourteen when I when I left. There were fourteen. 14. Well, we also and we also had the twelve undergraduate letterpress printing shops too. So a little bit of an interesting institute. <laughs> as, that was my my advice. Uh, but so you, you were in the Spizwinks. I can I love to say that. And Whiff and Poofs. And Whiff and Poofs are the best known example. But you had years as an undergraduate too, where you were able, I imagine, to be able to hone your voice in that environment where people were listening very carefully. There was a lot of competition, even though it wasn't a music school. You weren't at Berkeley College of music, but you were at a school in which there were hundreds of people involved in that very tight competition to get into a group that was this elite singing group. And I wonder, did that affect uh, the seriousness to which you uh, I know, did voice work or, or, or try to get that right kind of tone? Uh, I, you know, I'm sure it did. I, I think that the, yeah, I mean, a, cu- a couple of things. I, I, the acapella scene was always very important to me. I, I make jokes about it, but I do love the way it sounds. There's something really beautiful about just voices singing. Um, uh, and I, uh, I joined up immediately. I think I went to Yale largely because I loved the whiff and poofs. And so, yeah, it was a, it was a big thing for me. I, I learned a lot about, uh, harmonies, just being able to hear what other people are singing and sing, still sing what you're supposed to sing, being able to tune with them, um, this, that's, that's a real skill that takes a lot of practice to get to. And yeah, I think that the, you know, the acapella scene is pretty square compared with most other styles of music, especially at Yale. And so there are a lot of people who step out uh, from the circle to do solos uh, and they they sound like they're doing light opera. Mm. And for me, I worked very hard to perfect a kind of, you know, the kind of blue-eyed soul <laughs> style of singing that's not show tunes. And, uh, and it's not... white boy soul style. Yeah, I mean, it's... Is, you, is, yeah. you know, it's kind of it's, it's bullshit, but it's, it's also, it's a, it's a thing. And you, you're limited as to how... Uh, how much you can do a certain style, I think, by your instrument. And I, I spent a lot of time just trying to sound as, 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 as trying to sing as cool as possible, uh, while still doing, you know, satin doll or, 
whatever, whatever jazz standard it was that we were doing. Oh, my God. Well, I was thinking about, you know, the news radio episode, which I'm sure you're aware of, the chock full of notes episode of news radio. I don't remember that episode. Oh, my God. I'm going to put it in the show notes for the episode. And I'll send you a link later. But this is it's uh, it's David. Is it David Cross and uh, some of the other folks from Mr. Show, uh, Bob Odenkirk and um, uh, the tall redheaded guy whose name I'm blanking out on now. And um I'll, fi- I'll fix it in post now. <laughs> and uh, they, they come back as a reunion because Dave, the Dave Foley character, apparently they were an acapella group in college and they'd agreed that if they, none of them were married 10 years after college, they would reform the group, chock full of nuts. <laughs> <laughs> Which is so classic. And and at one point, Bob Odenkirk's like, I got fired from my law practice because I wouldn't stop practicing in my office, you know. And it's <laughs> – there's that – people have that idea about it, I think, a bit. But I think when I listen to your music, it's clear, and especially I think in that first thing a week stage, you had uh, the ability to – try a lot of different styles because you have the vocal um, control, which I think is very hard. You have to spend a lifetime trying to achieve that kind of vocal control and like the falsetto or like the way in which you could sing different styles. I have to imagine that some of the feedback you got from listeners was, I like the fact that when I listen to your music, it's not all the same thing. You did 52 songs and they're in this whole range of styles and stylings. Yeah, no, that's true. And, 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 uh, yeah, a lot of that was born of necessity. You know, I just, I had to do a song. And so (laughs) it's the, sometimes the only way you can keep yourself, uh, interested and the only way you can come up with an idea is by saying, you know, I'm going to do this kind of song now, you know? Um, but yeah, I've always been interested in different styles. And, you know, when I listen to pop music, the pop music that I like is music that's, steps out a little bit stylistically, you know, whether it's Elvis Costello or the Beatles or uh, Billy Joel, you know, there's a lot of uh, stylistic range in, in all this artist's work. And it's not, it's not just the three chord rock over and over again. Not that there's anything wrong with three chord rock, but, you know, if I'm going to listen to an album, uh, you know, I like, I like for there to be a couple of uh, departures. I wonder about the new crowdfunding economy. This is my, this is my clever segue. Let's talk about the new. You were you were you were pre crowdfunding. <laughs> you did crowdfunding on your own called individual sales uh, to, pe- <laughs> to people. Right. But the the new crowdfunding economy it rewards at some level people doing the thing that they're already known for. And I sometimes talk about crowdfunding as like oh if you're especially a creative artist you're you know dance music film and so forth you come to crowdfunding and you say uh, you do Kickstarter campaign and say hey you know me from these things. Things I did that you like. I'm going to do another kind of thing that you like, and would you help me fund it? And there's a seems like there might be a risk there that people take fewer risks because they're trying to appeal to that fan base, and the fan base wants them to do the thing they did before. So not an artificial heart, but another code monkey. Yeah, and and you know this is a challenge that exists for all artists is that you what your fans think they want you to do is to make the same album that you just made. They, they like what you've done, and they want you to do it again. They want there to be more of it. But it's your job to give the fans what they don't even know they want yet, <laughs> which means doing something different from what you've done. And it's a perilous path because you can, you can go too far and alienate everybody. You can not go far enough and alienate yourself. And you have to find that middle ground uh, where you're doing something that is new enough to interest you, but but also, you know, familiar enough for people to not go crazy. And yeah, I think you're right. I think crowdfunding is a, you know, I, I haven't done an album, a crowdfunded album, and I don't know if I will because it is, for me, it sets up a kind of dynamic that I'm not really comfortable with, which is that you know, suddenly, <laughs> if I get a huge chunk of money to record an album, suddenly I 
owe those people an album. And they have expectations about what that album is going to be. And if I, you know, they've, they've held up their end of the bargain by giving me money. And now I have, you know, I have made a sort of secret bargain with them. I don't know what they expect or what they want. But if I give them something that is not that, they're going to be mad. They're going to feel like they didn't get what they paid for. And that is a weird situation to be in. And, and maybe I overthink these things. But for me, it seems like it would be hard to write under those circumstances because I would constantly be thinking, am I going to make these people happy? These people who are customers who have already paid for this stuff <laughs> that doesn't exist yet. It's terrifying to me. You know, it's like, it's like somebody, it's the difference between you making a painting in the style and of the subject that you are interested in versus having a, a, a portrait commissioned you know, when you're, when you're doing a commissioned portrait, you are, you have a client and your job is to please that client. Whereas if you're just making a painting, your job is to, is to please yourself. It's a really tricky balance too, is, uh, well, we can talk about the, the money side of it too, is I think a lot of people are coming to crowdfunding on the, let's say on the lower end of the dollars raised because it's, it's expensive to make a good album uh, and release it and so forth. If you're trying to get into channels and press CDs and, and do the whole thing and you want to rent a studio and, uh, you're hiring musicians, it can be very expensive. And sometimes you have small groups that just really want to be able to do something at a certain scale and they're looking for thousands or maybe tens of thousands of dollars. And at the other end, you have, you know, say Amanda Palmer, who said, I want to do something crazy and fabulous. And the more money I raise, the crazier, more fabulous it will be, which is what turned out. And I wonder in your case, so I'll, I'll bring up the Planet Money interview from a couple of years ago. And I would say Planet Money famously tried to explain that you didn't exist. <laughs> <laughs> They're like, yes, yes, there is a Jonathan Colton, but there won't be any other Jonathan Colton. So he's actually a statistical aberration. And I think they were wrong at the time. I remember hearing it and practically screaming at the radio. And you wrote a, a long rebuttal on your blog about the people they brought in to rebut essentially your existence, even though you existed. Yeah, because right. Th- they were trying to prove, I think. And I don't know. I don't think they had an axe to grind, but I think they like to be a little contrarian. They were trying to say, not only are you sui generis, but there's not going to be another you know, circumstances that that in the lab where uh, you had every chemical and lightning struck it and it created you when the chemicals dumped on you. That's not going to happen to someone else. You're the only flash there can be. But that rather, um, I think your point, and I think we've now seen over two years, is that the same methods don't necessarily have to be at the scale at which you've reached. You've reached a very high scale of, of revenue and attention and, um, and appreciation as someone releasing directly to uh, your audience. But it seemed to me you were maintaining that what you did wasn't unique. You may have, like I said, you may be the apotheosis at this moment, or maybe I've got to say, actually, Amanda Palmer, I think, has now taken that mantle because of raising more money, let's say, from, uh, for doing direct release. But I think they were trying to say, that there's so many unique things about what you did, no one else can do it. But in, don't you think in the last two years we've seen that that's not true, that there can be many kinds of Jonathan Coltons at different scales? Yeah, of course. I mean, uh, you know, that was what was so confounding about their take on it is that they <laughs> they confused the details of my career with my business model. Mm. So they would say, you know, they would point to, you know, this the, the fact that a big part of my early exposure was Code Monkey being linked on Slashdot. And, you know, the fact that that channel, the sort of nerd blog internet news channel was, um, was a highly effective means of propagation for my music. And their point was, you know, I think they were, they were trying to say, well, not everybody's going to be able to make a 
nerdy song that is funny and about a monkey and gets linked on Slashdot. Like, you shouldn't try to do your career that way. And, of course, they're right. But, I'm, you know, I'm not... <laughs> that's, you know, that's, that's a specific detail that I think points to the larger picture that there are plenty of non-standard uh, channels by which your art can, can propagate. And, and everybody has to find their own, as indeed everybody has always found their own. You know, I think if you, if you talk to, if you look at, say, you know, the details of Madonna's rise to power versus the details of, say, the Rolling Stones' rise to power, you will find that they played in very different places. They were friends with very different kinds of people. Their fans were very different. Uh, they, you know, it happened at different times, so technology was different. And so, you know, you might as well point to any artist in the world and say, well, nobody's ever going to do that specific thing again, because, of course, it's true. Everybody has to find their own way of of making art and reaching fans. And I, I think that if I'm an example of anything, I'm an example of how there really isn't a standard model anymore. And you can there are many ways in which you can do it, and you just need to find a way that works for you. I think what they missed as well, and that you know very well, being, being independent in this way, is the current system is completely broken for almost all artists. Well, exactly. You know, it, so it's like the alternative to trying something like what you're doing would be to not do anything at all or never, ever be able to make a living at it. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and uh, you know, let's face it, any time an artist, uh, a, a, a songwriter, a musical artist makes money, uh, it's a miracle. Because, <laughs> I mean, really, literally, the 99% of the people who are out there trying to be professional songwriters or guitar players or rock bands are not successful at it. It's just, it's it's a very small fraction of that population has ever had any success in this business uh, for as long as it's been a business. And that, that, that hasn't changed all that much. I think it's still true, even with this technology. It's just that now different levels of success are can be sustainable. And it used to be you could you could really only be a, a superstar uh, and a mega success if you wanted to make even make a living this way. But now I think it's possible to be a to make a much smaller splash and and still feed your family. This is the the long tail thing that we have to come. You know, I think I mentioned almost every podcast because it the the issue is the long tail doesn't go away. You know, he, Chris Anderson's book he always had this the big head of a few people who are you know the outliers the the ten websites that made that had got most of the visits on the internet. And you know the long tail of people who had websites and blogs that got you know ten visits or something. But there was this thing that um, my friend Dave Sifri who found a technorotic called the magic middle, and he was talking about it in terms of blog when we were looking at whether blogging could be a way to make a living. And I was actually making part of my living from a blog back in the early 2000s because of Google AdSense and other things. And the issue for me is where you change the slope of that curve from super popular superstars who are making tons of money down to people who really can't get enough traffic or attention to do anything at all. And I feel like the events of the last few years and crowdfunding being one of them turns that dial a little so the slope isn't quite as ridiculous from big head to long tail and you have more people in that middle where maybe they're not making their full living from it, but uh, they're making some of it at least in a way that they couldn't if they were going through any conventional tales. Actually, in the big, the big tale, one of the, or long tale, one of the things in there that blew me away back when it came out uh, several years ago was there were only, I think at the time, like 700 something films in major release across the United States that played in more than, you know, every year that played in more than, I don't know, a few hundred theaters and everything else was like a tiny art house thing. And I was like, 
really? There's only like 700 movies that people see in any quantity. That was a few years ago. Now, between uh, Netflix and online streaming, download demand, you know, downloads, iTunes, and people streaming off their own sites, the number of films that people see to an audience of, like, let's say, tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands, must be in the several thousand now in that in that middle part. Yeah, and and uh, and I think it also it also speaks a little bit to that that Kevin Kelly a thousand true fans essay. I don't know if oh, you read yeah. that. It's from a few Marvelous. years ago. Yeah, and 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 I think that the uh, there's this sort of a fallacy that you know I remember when that article came out, there were a lot of people saying, basically arguing the math and saying, well, a thousand people is not enough, or you know, a hundred dollars a fan is not enough. It's never going to work. You know, <laughs> it always drove me nuts because it's like that's not the point. The point is not the number one thousand. The point is this idea that. Uh, you know that 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 middle where where it's 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 big enough to work, and the fact is it's much more uh, possible for people to get to that point of big enough to work, and and in fact there's so many different ways of doing it, um, and it depends on what the piece of art is and what the audience is and how it's distributed and how much it costs and and all that stuff. But the, the you know for me the point of all this thinking is that it's. It's much more attainable than it used to be. Whether you're a, in a rock band or, or a blogger, if uh, or if you are a, a an underappreciated uh, independent movie from 15 years ago, you know there's there's a there's a place for you. I think is is what has changed. I think that's I think that's exactly right. And I think the money pipe is part of it. Is I always try to emphasize in these podcasts that we're not talking about some glorious socialist communist future in which art is shared and everyone has a mix. It's that actually this, these are commercial endeavors. You're capitalists, you make money from your your work, you make a good return on the time you put into it. And the point isn't that we're all trying to either maximize profit or do this as a labor of love, but that there's a point in the middle where some of the mechanisms that have grown up since you launched uh, your career, and especially in the last few years, have let that revenue pipe connect more directly without the horrible details you had to do in the past where you had intermediators and labels and collection and blah, you know, all this stuff is like, there's a lot thinner layer between an artist and um, being able to interact with fans in a way that the fans are able to be patrons, either buy stuff or directly support in, you know, in like a rewards based Kickstarter campaign. Yeah. And, 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 uh, and yeah, I mean, I think that's, I think that's all true, and I, I the when I think of Kickstarter and fan funded things, I, I feel like that is, you know, once we once we get past the, I think we're having a bit of a, a romance with this idea of tiered funding and and turning every <laughs> turning every project into a much larger, more complicated yes. project where you're hand painting things and shipping them off to people and sending clippings of your beard and stuff like that. <laughs> When is um, that? You know, I you think John Roderick need to go in on that one, the beard clipping. <laughs> someday, someday. But I think what what it comes what it comes down to is is this idea that you can now connect directly with the people who who want you to make art, and it's a very clear transaction. And you say, if you want me to make art, I need your money. You know, I I think that the what we're heading toward is a much more direct, 
model where it's, you know, it's almost, it's pre-sales is what it is. It's like fund, fund this album by buying it. Yeah. I've, I've been, I've been <laughs> when, joking, when it's done, you'll I've been get it. That crowdfunding is just, you know, regular retail sales is like inverted crowdfunding. It's the same thing. It's just at some point you do the work. And the question is, where does the money come in that allows you to do that? For some people, you've reached the point where, you know, one hopes, I, I hope you have a good cushion and you can actually afford to do work you want prospectively. You don't have to do it. You can do it speculatively. Other people are in a point where even sometimes if they have the money to do it, they want the comfort to know that the next year is taken care of. Like they're not going to deplete their resources to do this or that they can bump it up a level instead of recording in their house. Maybe they wanted to do $200 an hour studio recording and having raised the money, they're like, oh my God, we can hire this producer we wanted. We can go in the studio for 20 hours and we can kick up what we're trying to do where People love what we were doing before. That was great. But now we wanted to get to this next level. Our fans wanted us to. Now we actually have the cash to pay to do that. Right. And it's, it's such, I mean, the great thing about it is that it's a, it's a very clear transaction. Uh, and I, just, I, I don't just mean the money part, but I mean, you know, you're, you're saying to your fans, look, here is what I want to do. Uh, here's, here's my goal. Here's my creative goal. And if you want to see me succeed uh, and attain this creative goal, then here's what I need to do it. I mean, it's such a great honest way of, of interacting between fan and famous person. It's just very clear. Um, and it's a it's a huge relief to everybody, I it's think. It's part of that breakdown that I think Twitter has encouraged, too, is that you can have, you know, you've got people use Twitter as an announcement platform, and they don't really interact with fans. Then you have people who, like you, who you obviously enjoy talking. I mean, look, you just spent a week at sea with, what, 600 people? Who <laughs> seven oh my god! Yeah, so I, I want to back up into that too. Is we talked about your recording career? You were selling music directly, and uh, you know you told NPR a couple of years ago it was hundreds of thousands of dollars coming in from the music at that point. But you're not just—that's not the only thing you do. You've got now you tour, of course, and I know you tour with Paul and Storm and other really great internet um, like rise to to fame and finding that tribe that they're part of. Story. You've got the Joko Cruise Crazy cruise that you do with them uh-huh. uh, you know you're on and this NPR show that I attended a taping of recently ask me another you're the regular musical guest on that show you got a lot of different things going on so it's I wonder if that's part of the economy as well is that it's not just you're in the studio pumping stuff out but that you have multiple revenue sources and multiple things obviously that you enjoy that you pull together and and one of them being this this cruise with 700 people yeah absolutely it's it's uh Really important to have a diversified portfolio, <laughs> if I may some, may say something gross for a moment. Um, it's true. I, I think that you, I, I don't know. For, for me personally, it's it's partially a, a business decision that I, I want to have a lot of things going so that when when one thing is not going as well, the other things make up for it. But I also, my motivation for uh, leaving the day job and starting to do this music thing was that I wanted to be challenged and I wanted to... I wanted to have a lot of different things that I could work on and call it work. And so the things that I decide to do are things that I am am truly interested in. And I, I try to let that be the, my guiding principle. So, the, you know, the cruise was started when uh, my booking agent, who is also Paul and Storm's booking agent, said, uh, hey, what if, what if you did a cruise? <laughs> Uh, you know, and uh, I was like, well, that's you can't just do a cruise. That's crazy talk. But, you know, he found a guy who basically set up events on cruises and, and uh, we talked about it and we did an online poll and there was a lot of interest for it. And we basically figured out that we could uh, make a run at it and not lose our shirts and see how it went. And that first year was a really 
surprising success. There were that first year there were 350 people who you know basically paid for a week long cruise uh, and carved out a week of their lives to be a part of it, and um, it was just so much fun. I mean, it was such a thrill to be organizing a fan cruise for one thing. You know, I, I have to pinch myself occasionally to convince myself that this is my actual life. Um, <laughs> it's absurd. But, but it was also like, it was that thing where, you know, when you go to a meetup in physical space that involves people that you've only met online, it's really great to remember that those people are humans and to make contact with them and hang out with them. And that was what it, that's what the cruise is about for me is that throughout the, the rest of the year, when I am communicating with people on Twitter and over email and in blog comments, and I don't get a real visceral sense of that community until I go on this cruise. And then I am just overwhelmed with the realization uh, you know, I'm reminded again that it's it's just such a wonderful group of people, and they are there. You know, at this point, we've done we've done it three years in a row, and it's gotten bigger and bigger and better and better every year. And at this point, it's not it's not even about me anymore. It's about this community of people, and there's so many amazing folks, and uh, they make their own fun, and they're there. They are there to hang out with each other more than they're they are there to see me do my same dumb uh, rock show. <laughs> Again, you know, and that's what's really great is it's, it's sort of, I, I love that it has sort of transcended me in that way. It's, it's just, it's just us. Let's take a break to talk about one of our sponsors. It's been so long since I've had to type my email address, my street address, my phone number, and other recurring bits of text in full that I scarcely remember them at times. I'm a longtime user of Text Expander, a utility for Mac OS X and iOS that lets you substitute a few keystrokes for strings of text. It's faster than typing, and it saves wear and tear on your fingers. Text Expander can be set to correct typos automatically, and you can update and add to the list of words it fixes as you type. I use Text Expander constantly to fill in forms and sign emails, and to drop in the current date and time and notes I take of interviews. The latest version for the Mac also lets you create form letters with multiple choice pop-up menus for quicker responses to email questions. In iOS, Text Expander works with 140 apps, including Day One, IA Writer, Byword, OmniFocus, and Things. There's a list of compatible apps on Smile's site. Find out more about Text Expander and Smile's other products at smilesoftware.com slash ND. That's ND like new disruptors. Now back to the program. I think there's this interesting thing that you haven't cultivated a distance. You've always had a direct relationship with your fans. The only way that you got started is you said, hey, I'm making music. If people don't buy this, I'm going to go back and be programming again for a living. And uh, this seems like an ultimate extension of it is you're saying, I don't need a you know, of course you have your private life and your separation, but you're saying, I don't need to be apart from this. I can be part of the people who actually like what I do. And Hey, I, I love that. There's like a layer of people like uh, Will Wheaton and John Roderick and, and your buddy, John Hodgman, who you've toured, toured with when he was doing uh was a second book, I think. Um, yeah. yeah so yeah. that there, and, and you're on his audio book that there's this sort of community of people doing like really interesting, quirky things that possibly could never have actually made a, uh, a successful career of it in the sense of being able to afford to do it and find that audience. And you've got this whole layer of people who both you work with, I know, on a regular basis, but also like who come now on this cruise and the people who are attending the cruise have that same relationship with, with Will and John Roderick and so forth that they, they're not some mystique. 
unless some people up on a hill where they're untouchable, it's like you're part of a, a milieu and you're part of it, even though you're like the creator of it or one of the people creating the basis on which the culture is is being propagated. Yeah, I, and it's it's uh, it's true. There is a fluid there is a fluid boundary now between certain kinds of artists and their uh, community of fans that did not exist before. And it used to be that in order to be a rock star, you had to be mysterious and inaccessible. And uh, now I think in many ways the opposite is true. And yeah, it's, it's great. You know, it's when you, when you work at home in your stupid office by yourself, it is really important, I think, to, to find who your peers are because they're not the people who are at, at the cubicle next to you anymore. You don't have that luxury. So, you know, the, the people who are performers on this cruise are, are my peers in that we are all working on various creative endeavors. We're all trying to figure out how to make a living doing it. We're all trying to stay abreast of what everybody else is working on, and we take inspiration from, from each other. And, you know, that list you mentioned of Will Wheaton and, and John Hodgman and John Roderick and Paul and Storm and everybody who's come on the cruise, I would say the thing about them is that they are not just performers whose work I admire, but they are actual inspirations to me in that I steal their ideas all the time about how, <laughs> how to be a famous person, how to make art and how to, how to run a business and how to have a public persona and how to mix with fans. Like I, they are all doing great things in those areas. And, and, and I love to watch them do it and it informs how I do my job. And I, th I think that's true for all of us. It's a very, very exciting thing. I like pointed to Felicia Day, who is, I find very inspirational in what she's done with her career. And, and both as a, you know, a young female, pretty actress and as, I mean, in our culture and as someone who had started down that path of sort of conventional celebrity, I feel like without all the mechanisms that have come into existence, including in her case, YouTube funding, supporting the creation of YouTube-only channels, Felicia would have been, I don't want to say this in the nicest way, but she would have been a B-list actor and probably happy with it because she didn't have that, you know, leading lady thing. She's quirky and fun and interesting. She's the girl next door. Um, and she did that. She did a lot of appearances like that in Buffy and elsewhere. And then through the magic of the internet, she's able to transform and say, no, I'm a producer and, uh, you know, and uh, writer and created these series and so forth. And it's completely changed changed her identity. Now she's a guest star on all these TV shows. They want her. They're cultivating her because she was able to build an audience that appreciated her for the things that a mainstream culture would have relegated her into a subsidiary role, both in her career and, you know, maybe in her money making and so forth. Instead, she's totally in control of that. Just the way that Will Wheaton is just the way that you are, that you've been able to shape an identity for yourself that doesn't rely on having to meet a taste maker approval and a kind of mass market cookie cutter kind of approach. Yeah. I mean, Felicia, you know, she's a great example of many things. She, good God, she works like a dog. I, you know, we would love to have her on the cruise, but I don't think she has a, a day to spare to do that. Sort She'd of have thing. to have her own satellite launch so she could stay in continuous communication. With I know. I don't know how, office. I don't know how she does it, honestly. And she's, she's amazing. I think she's incredibly talented and so hardworking and so smart about it. And yeah, I think you're right. I think that um, it is incredibly satisfying when you are fortunate enough to be in a position where you have, you've created something uh, big enough that other people want in. Uh, and, and uh, you know, that is the best, that is the best way to 
become an actor on a TV show is to have that TV show come to you and say, would you please be an actor on our TV show? That's so much better than going to the TV show and saying, may I please be an actor on your TV show? Because, yeah, it's, it's you know, people can build their own scene and then, then uh, people start knocking on their doors. Uh, and it's, that's really great to watch. And mainstream culture likes to appropriate what it sees that are successful in any niche and then, you know, make it incredibly blandized and pabulum. Yeah. And this happened directly to you not long ago. I don't know if any of our listeners have heard about this, but you've always licensed your music under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial License. And for this, I'll put links in the show notes, but that means that your fans can record music for their own purposes or people can do it. You just can't make money off it. And you need to say, this is a Jonathan Colton song, right? I mean, that's, that's sort of the basis of that license. That's right. Yeah. And it, but and this was a tool for you to let your fans have access to what you were doing as opposed to sort of keeping it behind a wall. Yeah, I am. Um, you know, I discovered Creative Commons. I was at a conference called Pop Tech. I was asked oh, to perform yeah. my my weird nerdy songs about monkeys and robots there. <laughs> and um, one of the speakers was uh, Lawrence Lessig, who created Creative Commons. And he gave this PowerPoint presentation that just blew me away. At the end of that session, you know, I walked out into the October sunshine and it was like my head was on fire. It was the most exciting intellectual (laughs) moment of my life, bar none. And it's just sort of completely rejiggered the way I think about culture uh, in a a way that felt so true and right. Uh, And just this idea that you, you know, it's not, um, you know, once a piece of art is done, being created, its journey is just beginning, and it's it's about how people not only enjoy it, uh, consume it, but it's about what they do with it when they make new things. And and the idea that uh, you know a song can have a life beyond what you have intended for it is is so thrilling on so many levels. Um, and uh, you know, it just seemed. It just seemed like the obvious thing to do is to not only allow people to do that, but to encourage them to to trade the music, to make videos and, and remixes and, and write stories and whatever they could think of. Um, uh, because it's not only is it a smart business thing, because it, it actually allows your memes to spread, but it also is really satisfying artistically. Uh, you know, when a when a fan creates something, that's such a vote of confidence um, beyond them just you know plunking down a dollar to get the to get the song. And, and that's something I'm sure about your audience is that as creative as you are, and as much as you value your own skills, is you have people in your audience who are. You know, they may not be songwriters, but they may be as talented a musician as you, and they can be doing their own riffs on what you're doing, and then you get a share in in that kind of joy of them riffing off your joy. Oh yeah, and 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 it's uh, it, it it's just remarkable to me. I there's a uh, there's a guy named uh, Spiff. That's his online handle. Who has made a number of uh, machinima. Uh, World of Warcraft videos for my songs, uh, which is a very specific niche of creativity that I never would have known existed if it weren't for him. And uh, some of those videos have been viewed millions of times on, on YouTube. And if I had spent the time and money and effort to try to make my own music videos that got millions of views, I never would have succeeded in a million years. And this happened without 
me having to think about it or spend money on it or worry about it or anything. It just is, it's just free, <laughs> free meme propagation. Well, and I'll, I'll be talking to Cory Doctorow in a future podcast in a few weeks about this too. And he famously took it even further and has always been a Creative Commons supporter. And he has people performing like plays in Romanian of his books that he's, and he doesn't get a penny from it. And he's delighted by it because he's not going to commission a play and have it translated into Romanian. It's like, this is great. Or actually even um, Indie Game, the movie, they uh, ask people to do translations in their for profit. They're not. They don't uh, have a kind of a sharing thing. But they asked if people wanted to do translations or or people offer to do it. So they have translations into dozens of languages of the subtitles of their film because people felt like they were part of it and they could contribute something without being ripped off. I mean, I think that's the fundamental thing, isn't it? That your relationship with your fans is that when people like Spiff does this, he doesn't feel like you're taking anything from him, even though you may get a benefit of promotion or whatever from it. He feels like. You've given him something, and you feel like you got something in return. Yeah, exactly. It's a it's a new it's a new kind of economy, and it's it's a I mean it's it's why Wikipedia exists. It's just people have people want to do stuff, and w- once you uh, have a, a a tool like the internet that enables everybody in the world to do <laughs> the precise thing that they want to do at, at, you know, at their homes and f- without uh, very much, much investment of effort or money, it's like this amazing flowering of, of creativity and culture happens. And it's, uh, it's great to see. And then we can get back to the mainstream part of this, which is, so you've always been open with your music for non-commercial purposes, and Baby Got Back, very famous rendition you've done, and uh, a few weeks ago, a fan tells you, hey, I think Glee is using your rendition, congratulations. Uh, that must have been a little bit of a surprise, because you had nothing to do with that. It was a surprise. I was, uh, I, it was a tweet uh, that somebody sent me, and I, I was like, well, that can't be right, because I, nobody has called me about that, but... Um, sure enough, yeah, they they did basically a note for note uh, remake of my arrangement of Sir Mixalot's "Baby Got Back" and uh, put it in the show, and it was um, uh, it made me really mad, uh, <laughs> and it made a lot well, of the I internet expl- really mad as well. I should explain to the listeners there's this funny thing too that I think people in the music industry are completely aware of, and and I think it, now people in the general culture are more so because of this incident. It's this thing called compulsory license, where in the United States, any music as soon as it's um, uh, the, it's a composition license essentially that for performance. So as soon as a song that's written has been performed and distributed in any of a whole bunch of ways to the public, at that point any other person can record that song and they pay a statutorily defined fee through an agency to the creator. And, it's just a very, and so this is why we have covers that people don't always understand the economics of, of covers, and that's it. So when you did Baby Got Back, you're, you paid fees to the Harry Fox agency, which then in turn disperses some of that to Anthony Race or Mix-A-Lot, because, and he can't say no. You can do a rendition of it that's faithful to the uh, melody and words, and he's not allowed, that's why it's compulsory, he's not allowed to say no. But What's the flip side of that? You don't get protection for your arrangement, right? right? In exchange for the uh, ease of obtaining that license, uh, I, the, my arrangement is not protected, um, and because the, you know you don't want a situation where I have suddenly forced Sir Mixalot into sharing the copyright <laughs> over a particular <laughs> work, which is the other way to do it. And so, yeah, and I, I was I was surprised to learn this as well. I you know I had never really. Uh, considered it, but of course it's it's right there in black and white. And so, yeah, in that in that respect, they did not do anything legally wrong, at least according to most lawyers. You know, there are other 
subtle subtle shades of uh, legality that you might quarrel with them over, but they are not uh, the kind of thing that I would want to uh, undertake if my opponent was Fox. Um, the, you know, there's still there's still some question as to whether or not they used my audio, uh, and we are sort of. Uh, in the process of investigating that and trying to unravel that. And, of course, that's a completely separate issue. The, the copyright of the audio itself does belong to me, and they would need to obtain my permission before using that. But, we, you know, we'll see what happens. Because I, I, um, a mixer could go back in the studio and he could say, I really like this dude's uh, recording. He could do something exactly in your style using and, and release it and as an homage to an homage yeah. and, and so forth. But he would probably, you know, the thing is, he'd probably give you a, a heads up if he did that, and he'd probably give you credit even if he didn't have to because of the, the economy among musicians. But this is a major show, a show ostensibly dedicated to the message of anti-bullying. Right. And the little guy. Uh-huh. And they didn't, they didn't give you credit. They've made these really arrogant statements in several places. I contacted them for an economist story, and they said, as you can imagine, we have no comment about this. But they certainly talked to some other people and made some allusions to it. But they really, I mean, they morally rip you off even if there's no copyright violation. Well, yeah, and I, I think it's a, it's a, it points to a really different worldview. There is internet culture and there's mainstream old school entertainment culture. And on the internet, we understand that you use other people's ideas all the time in various ways. Uh, we're quoting from each other. We're linking to each other. We're borrowing ideas from each other. We're building on other people's ideas. And on the internet, it's very easy to just say credit for this thing goes to this guy. You know, it's a we um, attribution. We we exchange attribution. It's like the currency that the internet runs on, and it's. Uh, I think people on the internet understand that and expect it. And you know, every now and then you'll hear about a guy or a website in a negative light because they failed to do the attribution thing properly. Um, and this is what happened with you is that, I mean, you, you mentioned it, I think, on your feed and suddenly uh, it's impossible to find out anything about you now, Jonathan, because everything on the internet is about this song. There were probably thousands, I wrote one of these stories, there were probably thousands of stories written about this. Fox gets hammered. People are talking about boycotting the show. There are a million tweets on this. Surely, even though you were annoyed at what Fox did, was that unexpected? Did that did that have at least a positive component for you when that happened? Oh yeah, I mean uh, it's you know it's great to when you're angry at somebody. It's nice to have a uh, hundred thousand people on the internet also be angry about that same thing. That's really that really makes you feel good. But yeah, I mean I think I think they got hammered. You know, the, I've I'm not as angry as I was, and I the thing that bugs me more than anything else is the stupidity of their policy because there's a, there's a right way to do this. You know, if you, if you're going to do that, um, it's fine if you don't want to pay me, but you know, it would be, it would be better for them if they got out in front of it and said, Hey, here's this artist. He made this great arrangement that we used on this, on this episode of the show. Everybody go check out his music. You know, yeah, or like a credit that just said arrangement after Jonathan Colton. Just, I mean, right, like yeah. that one thing Problem to acknowledge, <laughs> yeah. and and then suddenly it's a it's a net gain for everybody because then they are actually giving me something uh, worthwhile, which is not just credit, but also uh, you know they're they're putting me in front of their fans. You know, we're we're exchanging fan bases, uh, which is another thing that internet people do all the time, and something that something that they just don't. Get and that the you know the sad fact is that 
them being stupid makes me a lot more angry than them being evil. <laughs> I, I cannot tolerate stupidity. It's like, oh come on, God. guys. That's right. Something is wrong on the internet. <laughs> right. XKCD said. But, well, but I think this sort of highlights, I mean, there's that cultural difference. And over time, you know, what's the network going to be? What is Fox going to be in five years? I got no idea because the cable and broadcast markets are seeing declines. They're breaking up. We might have a la carte channels. Like the whole, the record labels have, have slowly, you know, first they gave up on DRM. They're slowly turning the giant ship. Like all of these battleships of, <laughs> of media siloing are starting to crash together and you're one of the I mean, you know, maybe that's what maybe that pissed them off that you're independent, but no, but you're one of the wedges being knocked into the wall of, um, I don't know, and I've lost my metaphor, lost the giant wall, monolithic wall of media, and now there's a million wedges of different sizes, some bigger than other. Amanda Palmer certainly was a, a you know, people in the industry went like, they tried to discredit what she did because it was yeah. so successful. You know, she doesn't need the money, now she's rich. Oh, she's not, you know, she didn't pay the brass section in this one town even though they right. volunteered to do it they didn't have their own free, she didn't coerce them <laughs> kick them prisoner <laughs> and put them on stage and they all uniformly said they love being there but you know so everyone has to discredit her and you know I think you've had less of that sort of discrediting thing because you've risen, it's been this gradual wave but it feels like this this industry that's founded on the notion that they control Distribution and they control pricing and everything else. It's falling apart. And so this Fox thing is going to be funny in a few years when, you know, <laughs> Fox is peddling uh, hot dogs on the corner or something. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I don't know. I don't know what's going to, I don't know what's going to happen to Fox. They're pretty big. They're pretty it's big. True. And, you know, you want to talk about uh, uh, diversification? You know, they're they're working on a solution. They're they're trying. It's true. They're trying everything. You know. And what it's going to be, uh, you know, clearly what's going to happen is uh, you look at YouTube and what uh, Felicia Day is doing there is YouTube said, hey, you know, we want to figure out what the future of of television is, and so we're going to fund a hundred channels. I think they put a hundred million dollars behind it or something for one year. Yeah. It was so popular, they're funding it again because they're part of Google and they have billions of dollars to burn to figure out what the new model is, and the new model is probably increasingly co-opting. You know, there'll be the Jonathan Colton show on Fox next season. It'll be, but it'll be increasingly co-opting the niches of, of online uh, entertainment that have grown big enough to be collectively a huge amount of money that's being displaced from conventional sources. And they'll want to co-opt and bring that in in some fashion. Yeah, yeah. No, I think that's true. And and it's, uh, I mean, you see, that's been the real change is that mass culture is now mostly about niche culture mm. um, in, in a way that it never was before. And the splintering of musical genres uh, is uh, is a pretty good window into that process, I think. It, it used to be there was Top 40. <laughs> you know, there was Top 40, there was R&B, uh, and there was Oldies. Those were the three <laughs> kinds of music, and classic rock. Those are the four kinds of music you could listen to on the radio. Um, and now it's like radio, radio doesn't know what to do because it's all about niche now. People find their niches and dig deep into those niches, which is why... Uh, you know, I think it's moving to, you know, music discovery is, is now less about people putting something in front of your face and more about you. You know, it's like the, the sort of the Pandora model. It's like, I like I like this kind of thing. What else you got? You know, and, and uh, it's uh, I think that it's going to head even more in that direction. So I think you're right. I think that the the biggies are, are going to end up being these uh, less less these monolithic structures and more a conglomeration of of little tiny towers 
I like that. I would like I would like culture to break into that because the notion there is no monolithic monolithic culture. There's just people promoting the notion of a monolithic culture. Right, exactly. <laughs> uh well, so listeners, jonathancolton.com where you can find his music, several albums, you can read the read the past and see the future. You can listen to NPR's Ask Me Another where he's a regular musical guest. You can find him on tour from time to time. You can go on his cruise. You can download yeah. his music and <laughs> make your own versions. You can you can get your own Jonathan Cold and refrigerator magnet, I'm sure, if you do that. <laughs> thank you so much for being on the show and talking about your approach to this. Well, thank you very much. Thank you, thank you for investigating this area. It's, <laughs> it's important that we figure this stuff out these We're, days. We'll figure it out together. All right, good. Okay, thanks. Thanks, Ben. You've been listening to The New Disruptors, a podcast for and about creative people and the audiences they reach. We're part of the Mule Radio Syndicate. Visit muleradio.net slash new disruptors for the detailed show notes and links for this episode, as well as to listen to or download any previous episode. You can use our site to subscribe to the podcast via RSS or click a link to find us on iTunes where you can rate and review the podcast. Click the contact link on our page or email newdisruptors at muleradio.net if you have compliments, complaints, or suggestions. If you're interested in sponsoring the podcast, drop us a line or visit sponsor.muleradio.net. Our theme music is by Jeff Tolbert, who you'll find at jefftolbert.com, and our audio engineer is Michael Warner. I'm your host, Glenn Fleischman. Please join us again next time. Music